I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Bishop. He is Professor of Philosophy and Theological Studies at St. Louis University, where he also holds the Tenet Endowed Chair in Bioethics. He's the author of The Anticipatory Corpse and most recently the co-author of Biopolitics After Neuroscience, Morality and the Economy of Virtue. Jeff, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Of course. You know, I read with great interest your uh, latest book. And one of the points that you make is that it seems we've entered in an, into an era of kind of like pop neuroscience and pop psychology, where authors and thinkers like Sam Harris, Daniel Kahneman, Jonathan Haidt, or even Mal- Malcolm Gladwell, they translate neuroscientific findings about our own biases or nefarious inclinations or our nature for a wider audience. And I've read books by a lot of these folks, as I'm sure many of our listeners have, and they're engrossing. In particular, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Haidt because he seems to be such a careful thinker. And in Biopolitics After Neuroscience, you and your co-authors write that for these kinds of thinkers, it is only a matter of time before we discover which kinds of genomes and brains are diagnostic for which problematic social behaviors. Armed with such knowledge, we will be able to deploy the innovative neurotechnologies to engineer moral persons and moral societies. Technoscience will save us from the frailties of biology. So broadly here, where do you see thinkers like Sam Harris or Jonathan Haidt airing? First of all, I agree that Haidt's work is is, uh, very careful and very thoughtful. And he he doesn't overstate his case in the way that other popularizers of, of neuroscience have. I think it's a cultural phenomenon that is is not unique to it's not unique to neuroscience. I think it's a cultural phenomenon that we want to we want to understand ourselves. We are, you know, we are enigmas to ourselves, maybe one way to put it. And so we, we're constantly looking for ways to understand ourselves. I think you see that, you know, as broad as far back as you know, Freud, you know, people trying to understand behaviors. And suddenly everybody's kind of into psychoanalytic thinking in the late in the early 20th century. I think you see it with the rise of the genome project and genetic medicine, where we always reduce ourselves to the the latest technology or the latest uh, set of scientific findings because we we are we are enigmas to ourselves. We, you know, it's you know, I think it was Pascal that said something like, like you'll have to forget his, his uh, sexism, but man infinitely surpasses man or something like to that effect. It, it's, it's that we, we, are so, we are enigmas to ourselves because we're so far ahead of ourselves with our imagination. And so we want to understand that and we want to kind of come back and reflect on that. I think you see it even earlier where we use certain technological metaphors to talk about the human being. You know, even in the ancient Greeks, you talked about human beings as uh, wax tablets, kind of where everything gets impressed upon the wax tablet and then we have a recording of it. Or you think of yourself as a blank slate if you're John, uh, you know, John Locke. Or you think of ourselves, you know, a lot of a lot of the Freudian imagery was the steam engine, was the me- you know the me- mechanism by which we understand ourselves. Then it was the genome is the mechanism by which we understand ourselves. Then it's neuroscience is the mechanism, or the computer. You know, oh, we you know we have storage, we have you know you know ready access memory. We talk about that, talk about those things about ourselves because we're we are 
we're not quite capable of getting a good look at ourselves. And so people are naturally, culturally, natu- in, in our culture, in any culture, are naturally curious. As if, if we infinitely surpass ourselves, we're, in, we're interested in what we are. And so in that way, you know, it's part of our kind of natural inclination to try to understand ourselves because we are enigmas to ourselves. So it's part of a cultural process, I think. The problem is, is we always tend to reduce ourselves to the the latest science or the latest technology. And we try to say, this is what we are. And at some point we will realize that that's not quite what we are. And then we'll have a new metaphor for, for ways of thinking of ourselves. But back back to the popularizers, I think the popularizers of, of neuroscience, you, you know, uh, as, as I said, Jonathan Haidt is, I think, a very careful popularizer of, uh, and he probably wouldn't want to call himself a neuro- neuroscientist. He'd probably want to call himself a moral psychologist more than anything. But but his work kind of gets gets cashed out in a kind of neurosciencey sort of way. In the book, we define neuroscience as really the fusion of two sciences. The first is behavioral science, which has its own theories and models and methodologies. And it, and it tries to bring, find correlations between, between behavioral science and a second set of sciences, neurobiology, and, and then tries to find correlations between those two. And so, so the human in that those cases are imagined to be two two different kinds of things, one a social and behavioral animal and the other a kind of biologically determined animal. And they're trying to find correlations between the two, which is interesting. And, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's something we should be doing, but we've got to be careful of the reduction. And, and why do you see the reduction as being deleterious or uh, leading us astray? Precisely because we, we, we reduce ourselves to the latest technology or the latest scientific evidence. And then we proclaim that to be true. And, and the typical move by contemporary people is to say, well, it is true. It, we, we have better science than they had back in Freud's day. And so it, it is true. And it's that is true that I'm, I'm questioning because all of our, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a really popular or funny way of, of thinking about reduction. And it goes, it goes like this. If I, I would have done much better in college if I had known that psychology was really biology, biology was really chemistry, chemistry was really physics, physics was really mathematics, mathematics was really logic, logic was really philosophy, and philosophy was really psychology. So we always reduce ourselves to the thing that we think we know better. And then we find that the thing we think we know better itself is a reduction, and then it leans to this kind of circularity. And that's the part where I think we end up reducing ourselves to a, a, a pattern of behaviors on the one hand, and then we try to lock those behaviors down in something material and substantive. Uh, and then we think, aha, we can retro-engineer that and we can start to modify the substrate, the biological stuff, in order to affect behaviors. And, and, and while mechanically that makes sense, I also wonder what kinds of reductions that is built in and whether or not we should really radically rethink what we think about ourselves. And that's mostly what this book is about. The problems of thinking about ourselves in these, you know, reductive sorts of ways. So one objection to this might be that, well, their goal is to improve the human condition. And so, okay, so maybe they're we're chasing our own tails a little bit. But I think they would probably say, well, if we can find particular areas of the brain where the seat of immorality or immoral urges 
lie or lies, then perhaps we can treat that and this way dramatically improve our lot and relieve suffering. And they would say, well, isn't this a good thing? And how would, how would you respond to, to something like that? Yeah, so of course, all science is done with good intentions. I, what, I, what I'm questioning is the seat part of that, right? It's kind of, it's, it's, it's reducing us to the mere materiality of, of the brain. Now, at one level, I'm completely in agreement that the human animal is the animal that, you know, whose consciousness rides on the substrate of the brain. But I don't know that I, the next step follows that we can reduce ourselves to the brain. Um, we are also cultured animals. Yeah, the brain is a necessary part of our, our being, our necess- a necessary part of our consciousness. But we, we, we are cultured beings as well. And it's the, the, other, the other part of this is that because we are cultured beings, we don't know science except through culture. In other words, science itself is cultured. It is a cultural achievement. Okay. So the very questioning that we do emerges from a culture that actually thinks that we can just intervene in the brain and then change behaviors. But, but again, that's just part of a larger, you know, what it takes to be human. If the human is, you know, is the brain to some extent, it is also a cultured brain, right? For instance, if you if a if a brain develops in the absence of language, that person will come to be unable to communicate with his or her culture, will be will appear to have cognitive disabilities to pe- members of that culture. And, and the reason is is because the brain, I mean, because the culture, the language, is is actually necessary for the wiring of the brain. And so the brain is already in excess, in excess of itself by virtue of being cultured in a certain way. But then science itself is the culture asking questions. And whatever the values of that culture are will be the questions that it asks about itself. And the value of our culture, the only value that we can all agree on is the value of a dollar. And in a way, that then is what is, you know, is it becomes the tool and the lens through which we then study our brains, which are already products of the culture. So there, so there's a kind of a different kind of circularity at work there that I think is 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 the problem, and and that's partly what we're saying is that the culture of science uses numerical ways of assessing human behavior. And they want things that they are pretty sure they know about, which is numbers. And they want things they're pretty sure they know about, which is values. And one of the best way to numericize values or to shape the way we think about ourselves is to assign a socioeconomic status, which becomes a proxy for community in these kinds of neuroscientific studies. And socioeconomic status makes economy. The, one of the biggest values uh, for for what it is to be human, and so it's it's it, it it's a it's a 
it starts in a culture that comes back to make to reify the questions in the brain. And we we live in another culture, we might find different ways of thinking about ourselves, right? That are different than the ones that are highly numericized or that are highly economic. So that's to me seems to be the problem is this reductive move, this idea that there is a seat of immorality. And so then the question is, well, maybe this entrepreneurial spirit, which is a lot, a lot of the neuroeconomists want to see the entrepreneurial spirit as the good thing that is is that that makes that is pleasurable to humans and makes humans uh, moral, so to speak. I'm thinking of the neuroeconomist Paul Zak uh, in his uh, his book, the the uh, moral I forget what it's called now the moral uh, the moral molecule. Um, and, and this this I- idea that this kind of reductive move, so so this 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 we reduce it to something that we think we can get our heads round, like a molecule, like oxytocin, and but but we, we're interested in in the way oxytocin promotes economic behavior because Balzac thinks economic behavior is equivalent to moral behavior, and then we go and find it in in the brain in some way or what it's doing in the brain, and then we reduce these all of these moral cultured moral behaviors to what's going on in the brain. And that that's just, as far as I'm concerned, that's just kind of silly to think about it that way. The human exceeds the human. We, we are much more in, in excess of ourselves and we're always enigmas to ourselves. And so these reductive moves that are and then we and then we live in a, in a country where you have to prove to the NIH that you're doing something that society values in order to. And so what do we do? We say, oh, we're going to improve economic value. And if you look at both the Genome Project and the Brain Initiative, you, you find that, that what, what, what happens is they start to say, we, we have, these will result in economic benefits. I think when Obama announced the, the Brain Initiative, he said something to the effect of, for every dollar we invested in the Genome Project, we made $120, Okay. And so we, we then tie the NIH initiatives to uh, economic uh, success, okay? And then, we, uh, and then we say, oh, and we're going to prove that it's economic success that is driving human behavior. Why? Because we have models of human behavior that are primarily economic in origin. And so that's, that's, the, that's the problem. So economics is, is just the common language. So we fall back on using that as our reference point. Well, it's, 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 it's we can fall back on it to use as our, res, uh, our reference point because it is the, the, the one value I think we can all agree on. OK, that's one thing, the value of the dollar. The second thing is, is that we we can numericize it. Right. We've got numbers we can put to it. We can create numbers. That that acts act as proxies, whether it's the measurement of a of a, of a amount of oxytocin or whether it's the measurement of something in, in the behavioral sciences like socioeconomic status, okay, which then acts as a proxy for community. Um, and and what we've done is we've reduced community then to socioeconomics, okay. And while economics, while money is absolutely necessary as an instrumental means to achieve other goods. It is not the other goods we're trying to achieve. And that's the problem in the behavioral sciences. 
And then that is tied, that, that moralization of the socioeconomic status to study moral behavior, right, it be, uh, is, is also standing in a history of the development of economics as a mathematical science, okay? And then uh, also in the moralization of poverty. In other words, creating a category of the deserving poor, and then the other category, of course, would be the undeserving poor. And so the development of these tools are intricately tied up with the history of a particular culture. And so, so we've got those two features. We want numbers because we trust in numbers. We want what do we, we what, what's the value we can agree on? The value of a dollar. What is the science that can uh, numericize behavior? Economic science, and that is built into a history of ways of taking care of the undeserving or the deserving poor. Um, and so, so we're the the the, the whole story of, of this history is a biopolitical story. It's an attempt to find biopolitical ways or biological ways to control political economic behavior. And so we end up then in this big circularity. That's the argument of the book. Hmm. And, and, and this, I, I want to get back to this claim about human science as a cultural endeavor, because I think it's a really interesting one. And I, I imagine plenty of scientists who would object to this characterization because they believe so strongly that science is not or ought not you know, be a cultural endeavor, but an objective search outside the influence of culture, which of course, it seems to me, never really truly is. It, it just seems to be striving for something that's quite impossible. So in, in what ways should the pursuit of science acknowledge this and maybe even integrate it into the way we study um, neuroscience or, or even human behavior? So because the scientific culture has a value for, quote, objective, unquote, truth. It believes in order for it to be true, it has to be true independent of a culture. And that culture always biases, creates biases. Culture is always a bias, in other words. I'm not sure how science could proceed except through some sort of cultural agreement as to what is going to count as an objective truth, okay? So it's already cultured in that sense. In other words, there's a social philosophy of science, right? Um, this, this is something that, that, that Thomas Kuhn argued, and this is something that Ludwig Fleck before him argued. That drives a lot of scientists crazy because in order for them to believe that they are ultimately doing something moral, they want to grab onto this, this idea that truth exists independent of culture. I want to say reality exists independent of culture. That's right. But a truth is, by definition, a way to get aspects of reality to line up with our cultural ways of thinking. So there's no way to think outside of a culture. Okay. So, so, so the social philosophy of science is something we've neglected. And I think we've, we've neglected it to our own demise. It is because we believe science is a cultural 
that you could get um, somebody like the Nazis saying, oh, that's Jewish science. So you can't read Niels Bohr. Okay. That is a ridiculous concept. Why? Because they believe they have the corner on the market of truth, of objective science, right? So, so, so rather than saying science is ahistorical and apolitical, it would behoove scientists to actually acknowledge that there is a social process by which our scientific claims can be made to, to say true within our culture. So science doesn't give us the truth. Science gives us truths as they can be culturally mediated, which means that they can always be questioned again. Okay. And that's the part that I think makes it better. Okay. To to talk about how science itself is a product of culture, because we can then ask the self-reflective question about our own activity. So it makes for better science to understand that science is a social philosophical process. Fascinating. I, um, you know, sometimes this, this kind of thing makes me a little nervous because while it's clear, as you point out, that there is some subjective nature to the way science is practiced now or some cultural element to this and, and you know, give the example of, of Nazi science. I do sometimes worry that if we if we acknowledge that that science is cultural in some way, that that also adds an extra layer of subjectivity to it. And so you turn in either direction, and the absolute truth is is sort of difficult to to seek or to to acknowledge in some way. I don't know if that if that uh, if that makes sense, but. I would like to know where you stand when you possess the absolute truth. The idea of an absolute truth means that you have the God's eye view, that you somehow have a, 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 a hold on reality that is independent of your own subjectivity and independent of the cultural medium within which you must articulate that truth. And that to me is a God's eye view. And beware those who proclaim they have the God's eye view. We've done some pretty horrible crap in the history of mankind based on people who claim to have the God's eye view of absolute truth, right? And and so this is partly what this is a warning against. Now, fortunately, science, you know, has these mechanisms in it where you can become self-critical. Okay, I think amongst the scientists... You know, those who there, there was this move in the 19th century where everybody wanted to be a science, 19th and early 20th century. Everybody wanted to be a science. Everything had been a philosophy before. Moral philosophy becomes moral science. Economics was a subset of moral philosophy. It wanted to become a science. Psychology was really a, a philosophy of faculty, faculties of, of the psyche, which, which all precedes the, the movement for everything wanting to become a science. Politics was a a subset of moral philosophy. Some would say moral philosophy is actually a subset of political philosophy, depending on who you talk to. But political science wants to say, no, we're science. Why? Because it gives them a semblance of having the truth. Anthropology was either philosophical anthropology or theological anthropology before it too wanted to be a science. Anthropology becomes a science just in time for the Nazis to begin to proclaim a certain kind of, of race of human being as being a superior anthropological being, okay? 
And so anthropology becomes a science at that time. And they've had to deal with, they've had to reckon with their own highly politicized, highly racist past. And in doing so, they've become more self-reflective on the practice of doing anthropology as a science, okay? So there are ways in which I think all of our sciences, all of us in the sciences need to start saying, whoa, you know, we've done some pretty horrible things under this idealized vision that we are going to have absolute truth on the nature of humankind, on the nature of human behavior, and we're going to reduce it to the brain in order to what? For what purpose? To relieve the human estate. Oh, to keep them from hurting themselves, to uh, you know, stop them from disrupting society through immoral behaviors, all of which then come back to that culture's vision of what counts as moral behaviors. What I, one, of the, one of the claims in the book, in chapter two of the book, was that if you look at the values that come to animate the, the neuroscience of virtue, those values look like, a, 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 like a, a good Democrat named what those values were. And then they go and they find those values in the brain, right? So value tolerance, pro-social attitudes and behaviors, emotional homeostasis. So they name some things like that. I guarantee you, you could come up with a conservative or a libertarian who would say, well, really, the, va- the chief values are personal responsibility, self-motivation, entrepreneurial spirit. And then guess what? I guarantee you, I could scan people's brains and find locations for those things. OK, so get, that's, that's just the way the human is. OK, so so we are always mapping our cultural values onto what we think we really are, which today is we think we're really just the brain. This is really cool stuff. This sort of goes a little bit back to something that you mentioned in the book about science and the scientific methodology itself involved in this approach. And I think it, it really ties back to what you just said. That is, part of the goal of this kind of neuroscience is to find a causal mechanism or connection between antisocial behaviors and brain physiology. And then create the innovative technologies to treat those targets. But you you write that this whole process has become circular. These connections continue to be presumed and pursued. And there's a huge disconnect between their findings and establishing causation from brain to behavior. So in what way is this approach or methodology presumptive or circular in some way? We want to establish causation precisely because we think if we can find a few points in that causal uh, chain that we will be able to intervene at one point to change the outcome at the next step, okay? The question is to, for me then, okay, if, if this cause, this, the way we define this causal chain is circular, there's going to be more than one place in which we can intervene. Why is it that we think we need to intervene on the brain? Or why is it that we think we need to intervene on the undeserving poor or the moralized poor or the, the, the empowered? Maybe we need to change the social and political circumstances that, that inevitably lead to poverty, which might be the very thing that neoliberal political economy is, is, is poverty might actually be a byproduct of a certain way of organizing society under a neopolitical regime. So why would we say we need to intervene on the brain, right? And the, the it, it, you know, so we are these, these organisms that aren't just linear from 
genes to brain to behavior. Because what is happening is the culture is influencing genes. The culture is influencing brain development, right? So why is it that we think we need to anchor it in those points? Because that linearity, because we actually reduce ourselves to genes or to brains, which has been something that we've been trying to articulate over the last, well, really over with the Genome Project and now the Brain Initiative, we're trying to find the two points of what we truly are. You really are just your brain. You really are just your brain, your genes that lead to your brain, right? Um, and so that, that, that's the problem that we're trying to get at is like, well, well, we've already conceived ourselves in that way with this self-fulfilling way of, 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 of imagining our own science. So you not only say that this methodology is presumptive, but you stipulate that there's some underlying eugenicist or phrenologic effect here, right? The social ills are rather understood as embedded in the bad genesis or bad brains of those bodies that are subcomponents of the body politic instead of feeling bumps on people's heads and correlating them with physical traits, as the phrenologists did. We now look at fMRI and do the same thing. Can you take us through your thinking, why is there a subtle eugenic and triumphalist thrust to enhance citizens using this kind of neuroscience? So, so the, the so-called science of phrenology was, as you know, a, a, you know, an attempt to read something deep about particular human beings by reading the surface of their head. So there already, there's a, a kind of, and the idea wasn't just that it was their heads you were reading, you're reading deeper into their brains and then deeper into their psyche about all of these, these behaviors. And then those who have these kind of, you know, these kind of skulls are going to be different because their brain is different below that and their psyche is different below that. Right. Not, not just different, but eventually bad. Right. It's sort of like, oh, we've got these bumps. That means the brain is doing this thing, which means that the psyche is is doing this other thing. You know, there are those out there who, you know, would almost want us to have to scan people's brains. Adrian Rain. And, and I think on some days, even Sam Harris might even say something to that effect, where we, if we can find the disorder by scanning people's brains then we can intervene for their own good, for their own sake, okay? The, the, the problem is, is that what you're, you're trying to find, a, you have to first find a correlation between the so-called bad behavior and the bump on the brain or the lighting up in the brain, which then tells us something bad, something that, that might be bad about the genes. In other words, they, they have a... Uh, a polymorphism in the promoter region of monoamine oxidase A, for instance, right? And so, so the idea is that we can just keep reading deeper and deeper to the seat of our being. And the seat of our being is ultimately the materiality of our being. And the, and the materiality of our being is ultimately written into that genome sequence, okay? And I'm just, we're just saying that's an artifact of, of, of the kinds of questions you asked at the beginning, Okay. I can find behaviors that have some behaviors that we might even consider, you know, positive or negative from any culture. I can trace that same sort of lineage. <laughs> and and, and the, the question, the moral question is further into that larger milieu that isn't in that reduced part of it. That's what phrenology said. Right. 
And so in a way, there are certain tendencies within neuroscience, given certain cultural presumptions about what counts as morality and cultural presumptions about what we truly are, which is the materiality of our brains and ultimately the materiality of our genes. And then we just read that backwards. And I'm not sure, I mean, the, the, the malleability of the brain and even the malleability of the behavior of genes is dependent upon the culture within which they are, are, are manifesting themselves. So we are, we are just as likely to repeat the same errors of phrenology as our predecessors were. Yeah, I see that. So it, it's very easy through this methodology yeah, I don't want to say like, oh, Nazism is going to come back, but some something akin to that kind of racism or presumption based on physical characteristics rather than the human soul or something like that. Well, this so this is the this is you know part of part of the you know Sam Harris, for instance, would say you know look the problem is the idea of the soul and that it's a cultural phenomenon that we don't we don't want to talk about. I'm just saying he's got the same problem. He's got the same problem because now rather than soul, he talks about culture and, 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 and it's in the, in the, and, and, and the, and the cultural presumptions that allowed the, the, the concept of soul to emerge and then to be read back into the body in some way, he's, 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 he is guilty of the same sort of thing. The soul just becomes the moral substance that a particular or the moral ideas that a particular culture holds, and then it reads those back into, into the body. So I, I would argue he has the same exact problem. And while he's absolutely right, certain notions of the soul have been abused in culture. I want to say the same thing is going to happen with this cultured way of thinking, where we are the values of our culture reading back into the brain. But in his instance, oh, it's really the ultimate thing is the beginning, which is the gene, which leads to the brain that leads to the behavior. And I'm, I'm saying that line is wrong. I wanted to ask you a bit about the, the concept of medicine and death, because I read um, The Anticipatory Corpse and I loved it. Um, and, and in it, you write, it is virtually impossible to think about how to solve any problem in medicine without our thinking becoming almost immediately mechanical and instrumental. Where does this kind of thinking lead us astray in the profession of medicine? Because I see this kind of thinking at work all the time. Uh, and I just want to hear it from you. Where, where does this kind of lead us? Um, at the time I wrote that book, I would probably give a very different answer than the answer I'm about to give. And I'm going to first say what I think the problem is with mechanical thinking. I'm going to say what I think the philosophical problem is with mechanical thinking, and then then go to the second, the, your main question, which is, you know, how how does this lead to problems? Okay, so I think philosophically, uh, we are more interested in analysis um, than we are in trying to understand wholes. Now, it's hard to we, we want, because we have a, a kind of thinking, my, my colleague, Kimball Cornu, has this idea about a, what he calls a dissective rationality. And the idea of a dissective, a dissecting, like to dissect, <laughs> a dissective kind of rationality has to cut and break things apart. Things that are intimately related to each other and functioning as whole 
have to be cut into parts because we sort of believe that we have to build from the smallest thing up to the largest thing. Okay. And that is a, that's also a product of a certain historical way of thinking. Okay. Rather than engaging holes, we only engage parts. Okay. We only think we know in terms of parts. All right. And so, but when we cut, okay, we take a slice of time and the slice of a, of a, a movement of a body. A living being is always in motion, always in motion. Every aspect of a living being is in motion at every level. We take a cut and we freeze it in time. And then what we have, no matter how, no matter, let's take like a, a, a the old, old timey film, okay? Film is just a series of still images and you just get them really close in time to each other, okay? And then you have a still image and a still image. But no matter how small you make that time, there's always a temporal difference between one slice and the other slice. There's something going on there that you're not capturing. So by, by virtue of our analysis, we're cutting in time. We're taking freeze frame pictures of something. Okay. And those freeze frame pictures then are just a series of stills that we have to put back together. And we run it fast enough. And we believe that no time elapses between the still frame, but something has elapsed. Okay. Time has moved on. So what that means, and the other, the other idea that, oh, you can cut nature at the joint. Just think of that. You can cut nature at the joint. First of all, you're cutting. So you're already destroying the thing. <laughs> you're always just already disrupting reality with your cut. Okay, so that if you cut nature at the joint, it ceases to be a joint. And it's because our tool is the scalpel. And we think, oh, I've got a really refined tool that can cut nature at the joint where our technology is dictating. I mean, if I have a hacksaw, I can cut nature anywhere. Um, And yet I've destroyed it. If somebody is running a race and you literally try to cut their joint while they're running that race, they will cease running the race, right? So holes are in motion. They're in the flow of time. They're constantly moving, right? But when you cut, it ceases time. It freezes time. So what we have is a series of stills that we then have to mechanically reproduce in our minds. So the flow of being, the flow of reality, is a very different from our sliced pictures, which we then reconstruct in this synthetic mood. So our pictures are always inadequate to reality. Our thinking, our analytic thinking, and then the reconstruction of those still images are always inadequate to that reality, which is fluid and flowing and absolutely dependent upon the interrelations of the parts in order for that thing to be, okay? So that's the problem with our mechanical way of thinking, with our analytic way of thinking, is that it gives us a false image of a reality that is richer than the thing, the pictures we're taking. So that's what I, I, that's the problem with this mechanical way of thinking. And then what you get are just these series of parts that we think have to hit like, like billiard bars, one hits the next, hits the next, hits the next. And it becomes this very choppy way that, that biology, we think biology works. And that choppy way that we think something lives is actually just built upon a kind of implicit, uh, implicit violence of one body 
having to hit another body to cause it. So our theories of causation then become theories that kind of have a violent nature of one body hitting another body, um, rather than trying to think of the whole. And, and the, the best people who are thinking about this now aren't the physicians. Uh, it, it's the ecologists who are thinking in terms of holes rather than in terms of mechanical bits. Yes. And, and I, in the hospital, this is exactly what happens is we, this I think is along the lines of what you're saying. We think of the brain, we think of the kidney, we think of the heart, and we have specialists to deal with these particular organs. Sometimes we think about all of these in concert together, but more often than not, I would say a reflexive instinct in medicine is to see them as separate in some way. Patients in the hospital for pneumonia and has, you know, altered mental status. Okay, so they call the neurologist. Well, are there seizures going on? Did this patient have a stroke? We should get an MRI. We should get an EEG. But that's very focused on the brain itself. Altered mental status is sort of a global deficit um, or issue. And I'm not sure if that's what you're getting at, but that's the way I kind of see it in my day-to-day life. It seems to me that you're asking about why it is that we, you know, there's a why we, you know, sort of like, oh, I, doc, I've got, I've got a problem with my right nostril. And in and, and my doc, the doc says, well, I don't only take care of left nostrils. I can't see you because I only deal with, with right nostril, you know, um, it, there's a sense that we become so, so specialized and subspecialized in, in systems or parts of anatomy uh, that, that it's, it, it leads to a, a very problematic way of, of, of thinking. I had a, I had a, a renal nephrologist at one point who was, who was, uh, you know, he, he, he said, he said this, he says, what's the purpose of the heart? And he, he said, the purpose of the heart is to perfuse the kidney. And so he was, he was essentially making a joke because everybody knows we all have this intuition that the whole is greater than some of the parts. And yet our mastery of knowledge is that it really is reducible to the, the parts and therefore to the sum of the parts. And, and, uh, and even though we intuitively we know better than that, our analytic mind says, no, we have to think about it only in terms of parts. And that, that's, that leads to a kind of isolation of body parts and we're going to intervene when we know for a fact that you have to take into consideration the whole. And even the little joke that really the purpose of the heart is to perfuse the kidney even even my nephrologist friend who was saying that was saying that tongue in cheek because he knew he knew deep down that really the sum of the parts uh, it, 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 the, the whole is truly greater than the sum of the parts and yet we don't have a way of implementing that very easily it's not science when we do that um, in, in a clinical setting the science is the parts not the whole and that's the problem this ties, I think, to to Foucault, and you cite Foucault quite a bit in The Anticipatory Corpse, and one passage in particular stands out to me as quite troubling, and maybe we can sort of work through the consequences of this view and how it relates to our own medical culture. According to Foucault, medicine sees the dead body as the normative body, such that the dead body can be mapped over the living reality of the body. And then we can make claims about the living body. And I think this ties back to 
what you are saying about body uh, things in motion, like a living being in motion versus a dead body which is at standstill. And so the dead body cannot be superimposed on the living body, even though we do so all the time. It's the basis of our medical education. We start with anatomy. What is anatomy? We dissect a dead body and learn about how these body parts relate to each other. So what are the the consequences of this of superimposing the dead body onto the living body. So yeah, there's a time in the history of medicine in which the dead body becomes fetishized. And that is around the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century. Um, and it, it's because there was this belief that, that, that if we could get to that moment, you know, that moment before motion, we can then build our knowledge out. And so the dead body ceases to be alive, ceases to be in motion. And at that moment, we can then look at the anatomy and we see the starting ground for all the other motion, okay? And things are easier to know if they're not in motion, okay? And so the dead body is not in motion. And therefore, or the, the idea is that the dead body is not in motion. And then therefore we can start to build our knowledge from that absolute stable ground of non-motion, okay? First of all, that is already an idealized view. The, the, the dead body, as we know, doesn't just cease motion. It begins putrefaction, you know, even before that, right? In fact, we see putrefaction beginning, um, when we have low flow states in the body, you see that in the necrosis of toes, for instance. So even while the living body is in motion, you can still get the kind of the beginning of the decay of the body. Okay. Let alone the fact that when we die, dying itself is a process. And then even if it were an absolute zero point, immediately the body goes in motion the other direction with putrefaction. Okay. So it's, it's moving anyway, okay? So it's, it's already, I, the idea that we can start with anatomy and build out from there was this kind of idealized view that science had, that we had the absolute stable ground upon which truth about the human body could begin. But that's already an idealized view because we know that the motion is, is never really stopping. It also kind of gives credence to this idea that there's a, a thin line between life and death. And, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I think that I want to, well, I'll say something about brain death later if you want me to, but, but it kind of creates this kind of artifice that we have, that there's this absolute zero point between life and death. And I think that's, that's, you know, that, that creates a series of problems that flow from it in terms of medical education, because that is the starting point for everybody. It shapes our, our attitudes subtly. You know, we, we always talk about the hidden curriculum. Well, there's a hidden curriculum in that that kind of manifests itself as we move forward in the way we take care of people. I remember as a medical resident, one of my favorite patients, he was, he was, a, he was, a, he was the funniest guy I've ever <laughs> encountered. He was just joyful, funny guy. 
who, you know, was just a joy to see. So he comes in with the, uh, an abscess on his knee. And I can't tell if the abscess extends into the joint or if it's just superficial. And so I called the surgeon to look at the abscess. And thankfully, the abscess wasn't into the joint. And so they didn't want to have to take him to the operating room and open it up and, and open the joint and clean it out and do all the things that they have to do. I admit him to the hospital. The surgeon comes and sees him. He calls me and says, yeah, it's not in the in the joint. I'm just going to debride it here at the bedside. That afternoon, I, I go to follow up on him to see him in the hospital. And I walk in the room and the surgeon is literally bent over my patient's knee. His knee is kind of propped up on the, up on the on the table. And the, the, my patient is literally lifting himself off the table, lifting him. He's in kind of writhing in pain as the surgeon is kind of oblivious to the pain he's visiting upon my favorite patient. And he's digging in that knee to clean, not in the joint itself, but in, just in the, in the tissues around the knee to clean it out, to, to, to breathe the abscess. Okay. Right there is just kind of the, the way we are inured to the dead body, this, this surgeon was inured to this, this living body as if it was a dead body. And it's part of the hidden curriculum that shapes the way the surgeon imagines what he's doing. And he can't, couldn't see that he, this wasn't a dead body. This guy was literally writhing around in pain. And he was just, he was trying to treat it. He was getting him some morphine. He was, you know, telling him, get, give me some, uh, you know, more lidocaine to kind of numb it out. But at the same time, he's sitting there debriding it with the patient writhing in pain. And so that's the product of a kind of disordered way of forming physicians or a mouth or a way of malforming, not just forming physicians, but malforming physicians, you know? So, so that's, that's what I would say. The consequences of this kind, it kind of seeps in subtly for the way we take care of the living body. That's highly problematic. So that's the problem, I think, of this dissective rationality as Kimball Cornu calls it, or the, uh, or of the way we imagine the, the body as just an anticipatory course. Okay, I wanted to follow up on the the concept of brain death because you 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 spend a good deal of ink on the concept of transplantation and death, which ties very closely with brain death. In fact, the concept of brain death, in some ways, like emerged from this need for organs for transplantation, and it seems like we attempt to master death by deploying ways of judging people to be dead so we can use their organs for transplantation. And you write that there is a subtle violence in these practices that are hidden by language concerning the greater good. And let me see if I'm getting this right. We declare a person dead because the brain is no longer functioning, yet the other organs are alive, otherwise we wouldn't be able to use them for transplantation. Thus, we locate death in the brain. Tell us about this as a sort of philosophical problem and how it manifests in our treatment of patients. Okay, it's a philosophical problem because we have this, we, 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 we have, a, there's a reality about the living being. And we have, uh, and there's a, there's a point when that living being is dead. And there's, there's, so there's that reality in the world. So death is a reality. The problem is it's really an absence of something. 
Okay. And so because we're trying to detect a non-presence of life, it has that problem to begin with. Second, we have a concept and concepts are formed in a very philosophically complex way, okay? So we have a concept of death, and at one point, the concept of death was that the body ceased to function. That's a different concept than the brain ceasing to function. And so the concept of death already is committed to a localization of death in a part of the body, which, you know, may be true, <laughs> okay, but it's, it's already a different kind of concept. In addition to that, we have to take the concept that we have and begin to operationalize the concept by finding operations that allow us to say when a particular state of affairs in the world, the dead brain, um, has, has been, a, you, you've arrived at that state, Okay. And so you need operations. And the operational definition are the brain death criteria. Okay. And so you've got concepts of, uh, they've got the larger conceptual definition, which is partly a cultural artifact. And it's as, as a cultural artifact, it has the need to redefine death from the body to the brain as part of its, its conceptual apparatus. And then you have to find the operational, you have to operationalize the concept, the operations that allow you to pick out an instance of the concept in reality, okay? And that is an enormously complex philosophical exercise that is grounded in, in, a, in the operations are grounded in science, okay? But then science is already a philosophical approach to say that we can arrive at things that are more that are true by engaging in science, right? So at every level, the definition of, 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 of brain death has a series of philosophical questions from the creation of the operational criteria. In other words, what counts as the diagnose, the, the, the diagnostic test we do is the operational definition to, in, to, in, to inform the conceptual definition of a state of affairs in reality. And at every level, you have a series of philosophical problems that we believe we can overcome, but I would argue that we can never truly overcome them. Now, now what animates the need for a certain operational definition is a certain conceptual definition. And what's necessary for that conceptual definition, part of what animates the conceptual definition is the social need of getting more organs. Okay, so you can't ever really disarticulate a def, a, a con the conceptual definition of brain death from the cultural need. Okay, and I think you can I think you know you can pretty much see that what pushed us to redefine death from whole body death to to or cardiovascular collapse, uh, uh, irreversible cardiovascular collapse to brain death was the pressure point of needing organs. Um, if you look at why 24 hours as opposed to 72, uh, 72 hours seems like it would be better. You know, we do have uh, we do have a phenomenon known as stunned cerebrum, 
right? Where there's aspects of the brain after the brain, you know, starts to, to, to reduce its swelling, parts of the brain wake back up. And so 72 hours, you would be more likely to find out if someone's going to have stunned cerebrum. But the 24-hour the 24-hour rule is primarily there to assure that we get fresh organs, okay? In fact, you can see in the archival research, I cite this person in my book, the archival research that she did, I don't have my book ready to hand, and I'm blanking on her name, I'll think of it later, you know, the archival research that she did was looking at the notes and it wrote in the margin, seven, originally it was going to be 72 hours, 72 hours, why 72 hours, 24 hours would be better. And, you know, why, why is it better, better, fresher organs for transplantation? So, so we, we're already packing a certain set of social values into the conceptual definition, which then frames the operational definition, which then, you know, and so it's all philosophical, moral questions that are animating the whole enterprise. Um, and that, that's something we, we don't like to think about because we think, oh, our science is truth, right? And so we don't want to think about the cultural features that kind of help shape that. Now, metaphysically, I'm willing to say that brain death is a good point for, on which to build the moral ground uh, around transplantation. Um, I think it prevents us from doing some pretty horrendous kinds of things, because if we don't have a, a line in the sand morally, we're very likely to have a very squishy line. And then once you have a squishy line, you're very likely to have people who want to say, well, I don't see a difference between that line and another line. And suddenly you've got depressed people thinking, oh, I'm so depressed. I don't want to live anymore. It's my choice to die. And I want to donate my organs. And therefore, I'm going to I'm going to have euthanasia so that I can donate my organs for something good because my life is so miserable. So I'm all for bright moral lines. OK, but but the it's a moral line and not a metaphysical one. OK, so it, it, and that's the part that I think we have to acknowledge or else um, we do slide down slippery slopes. I know people hate slippery slope kind of arguments and believe that we can create stop gaps for them. Uh, yet we always see that in 20 years, those stop gaps are uh, inefficient at stopping the, the atrocities we thought we could prevent. So it's actually a moral phenomenon to see a slippery slope. And I think we ought to take that seriously for moral purposes. Last question. Medicine seems to be about power in a lot of your writing. The power over morality, the power over death, the power over life, the power over culture or vice versa. And in making this so, we seem to ignore the rich particularities of individual patients. We concern ourselves more with societal health than individual health. Where does medicine go from here to incorporate these rich particularities into our practice? I know a, a solution to this problem is probably very difficult, but I, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. So, so the, the first, the first thing I think we have to do is, is to acknowledge that, that our mechanical view of the body is a view that is built on power relations, the power relations between a heart and the vasculature, the power relations between, I mean, just, if you think about it, we need fuel 
to, to, to survive. And if we, if we keep it, so we have to have the sun's energy that puts the sun's power, the sun's energy is captured in carbon bonds through plants. We eat the plants. We then break down those bonds in order to use those bonds to power our body. And so what happens is we begin to see, and then, then we create political alliances, power alliances, in order to make sure that we get certain kinds of food or oil in order to run the power. And that what is oil? Oil is the sun's energy captured by plants millions of years ago that we then can break those bonds and use for kinds of powerful purposes. So in a way, the reductive model keeps reducing down to power relations, okay? And I think that creates what I've called in other publications, not in, 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 uh, in the anticipatory corpse, but a kind of power ontology that is that we are fundamentally just power relations. Uh, we're not even the substance, but the power uh, relations between the substances. I think that's an artifact of the way our science works, because I said before, our science cuts the world into parts, and then we have to think about it, strictly speaking, as power relations instead of interrelational bonds, you know, bonds that are uh, animated for other purposes, not, not, not just power relations for the sake of more power, but, but, but bonds of relationality, uh, the relation of the body as a whole, the relation of the body within a, a community, the relation of the community within an environment, the relation of the environment within an ecosystem, if we start to think more holistically about ourselves, if, if what I've been arguing is that we, we have artifactual ways of thinking about ourselves, we can change it by imagining these, these series of holes. I don't know how that cashes out in any particular instance, because I think we haven't been thinking of ourselves as interrelated beings, part of a whole and a larger system. And so I, I think it's going to be, we, we need to start philosophically engaging those questions that imagine us not as powers, not as fundamentally a power ontology, but a kind of relationality, kind of loving relationality between beings. So that it's not that I long to help someone because I have power over their body, but I long to help someone because they help us all flourish as a community in a better way. Um, and so I think if, if we, I think if we start philosophically reimagining what we are as human beings, we can actually change the practices that, that, that are currently animated by the dissective rationality and a power ontology. So there is hope, there is hope for us, but it requires us to fundamentally reimagine the kind of being that we are. On that note, Jeffrey Bishop, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Really appreciate it. My, my pleasure, Aaron. We, we, I enjoyed it immensely, and I wish we could have gone longer. <laughs> There's so many other kinds of things we could talk about, so I appreciate your time. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.